We'll be in Ezra again tonight, kind of uh, doing something a little different, but I wanted to start with where we left off last week, make sure I covered a couple things. Oh no, it was two weeks ago now. That's why I couldn't remember where I left off, so what I'm going to do is safely just cover a couple of those things out of chapter two, and, and, and just in general thinking about the nation of Israel, its uniqueness, and um, some of those things that I wanted to bring out of that. And then if we have time, I wanted to, I wanted to view, um, I wanted to take a look at Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole as a time of reformation and renewal. With this being Reformation Sunday, it may, that dawned on me earlier this week and I had read a while ago one of, the, one of my books on Ezra and the author makes that comparison and I thought that was very interesting actually. When you think about the time of the Reformation period and how God does these things in a similar way. And so I was going to draw attention to that. I thought it was interesting. Plus, it's a good way of getting, since we're just walking through the chapters of Ezra, it's a good way of like zooming out and looking at multiple chapters throughout both Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so we'll, we'll go with that. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you work in our hearts um, and even for the people who are here tonight and you work in their hearts to know you and to come out and look at your word for a few more minutes on a Sunday. And uh, so I pray that as we've gathered for this purpose and we're going to look at your word out of Ezra and Nehemiah, you would help us to see what you want us to see and be encouraged. So I'm praying, God, for a work of your spirit tonight to encourage us, to help us, and um, so we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. You know, I was thinking about this earlier, is that um, the people who come to a Sunday night gathering are usually the people who are really saved at the church. So like, we're, we're the ones, like if there's a rapture, we're going to go and the rest would be left behind, you know, they'd be like, it's all the Sunday night people, they're gone. And we're like, we told you, it's the super spiritual people that that show up on Sunday nights. You're really the spiritual people. But, all right, so what we have, um, let's look at, just turn into to Ezra, to Ezra chapter 2 again and just refresh your memory there about what we're looking at in Ezra 2 as uh, we have a list of names and numbers and of the returning exiles. Chapter 1, these were the people of the providence who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. Uh, they returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, each to his own town. And again, we're not going to go through all of this, and we did look at this generally last week. I just want to make a few more uh, observations here before we, before we leave it, move into chapter 3. Uh, this is a, a chapter, remember, we're talking about not just the names and the amount of, uh, or the number of people of Jews that return, but this is really a display of God's faithfulness to a particular people to whom he made particular promises. You remember this, the exile to Babylon was punitive uh, in nature from God, and he used the Babylonian Empire to do it, but he also made promises, right, to restore these people. Uh, to their land. And um, this, uh, this man, Augustus Neander, 
was the chaplain for Frederick the Great of Prussia. So about 1720 to 1886 time frame with, the, with Frederick the Great there. Neander was a believer. Frederick the Great was heavily under, uh, under the influence of Voltaire, the French infidel. One day Frederick asked Neander, what proof can you really give me of the validity of Christianity? Anybody know what that, he answered? Anybody heard this before? He said, the Jews, your majesty. He said, if you, what proof can you really give me of the validity of Christianity? His answer was the Jews. Why would he say that? I think it's a good answer. Right, exactly. That's one. That's, yeah, they still exist. And... Um, by all rights, I mean, if you think about it just from a human perspective, here is a people, not great and not mighty, but very hated. Um, with everything going on over there right now with, uh, uh, of course, Hamas and, and uh, Palestine and things, there was a, a Facebook post, and Allie showed me of one of her Facebook friends, and this person had listed uh, uh, or yeah, it was just kind of a list of the things that, that he took issue with or others. He didn't write it, but he posted it from somebody else about the Jewish people. It was things like they own too many of these corporations. They're this, they're that, and whatever. I got done reading that list, and I said, that's exactly what Adolf Hitler was saying among Nazi Germany. I mean, so it is, a, it is an irrational hatred of a people group, even by people who have no skin in the game at all, just like Dudes who live in Colorado, you know, like what it doesn't affect them in any way what the Jewish people are doing. It's just a pure hatred of these people. And yet we do see God has always in place people protecting the Jewish people. I think it's one of the evidences of Christianity and not only of the fact that um, God preserved them in the Old Covenant era, for a purpose. We understand that. We see this happening. They, God would have had every right to just wipe them away, okay, but he doesn't because he made promises for that particular people. And remember how we view it. We understand what he's doing is that he is helping these people, or yeah, preserving them, helping them, keeping them in that land, and uh, for the purpose of bringing in the Messiah through them. So we understand that. We also understand when we look into the New Covenant era, uh, Paul, as we, if you've been with us as we studied through the book of Romans, Paul makes comments like, um, if, you are, uh, if you have faith in Christ, you are a child of Abraham by faith. And that's a powerful statement. I mean, that is Gentiles being grafted into the, uh, Paul calls them in Ephesians 2, fellow heirs of the covenants of promise. Um, and so we understand that the, the one new man now in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, is the church. We understand things like that. And yet there does seem, if you study Scripture and read it, there seems to be a place for God's continued preservation, and we'll be looking in that in Romans 9 through 11, God's per uh, continued preservation of this people. I think in two ways. He keeps them as a, an ethnic people, as, a, as a, uh, uh, the Jewish people themselves, 
But in addition, then he's saving people without. Paul refers to them as the remnant, just like back in the days of Elijah. I reserved 7,000 for myself. Paul's making the case he hasn't abandoned them. But when we see things where God is just providentially working among the nation of Israel, I don't think we should pass that over as insignificant. And, we, and I also believe that uh, Christian people should have a, a very much an interest in what's happening with the Jewish people. I think that um, there is a biblical connection that the church even has to its roots of, uh, in, in among the Israelites and among the Jewish people. We have that connection in Scripture. Now, we need to make it clear when we discuss these things with people that the Jewish people themselves who are not believing in Christ are not entering into God's promises of a kingdom. That's not going to happen. And I think some Christians, the way they view things, they, they talk about the Jews being God's people. And there is a phrase in Romans 11 that does say that he, it, it uses that expression of his people still in that sense and that there are covenants that he made the forefathers that he fulfill. But we do need to understand that they are not his people in a saving sense. That's really important to understand. To be saved, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, you have to have been, you have had to embrace the Messiah by faith and be in the church. Okay? You have to be in the church, the body of Christ. Um, but that does not... Uh, negate the fact that God still is preserving those people for a specific purpose even in the future. And some of the very promises, and I was going to look at a couple of these today, where God promises, even in that time of exile, to restore His people to the land of Israel, it is pictured of, in a time of just uh, beautiful idealism and you know, true worship of God and, and joy and a complete restoration to which if, if we look at the history, even in Ezra and Nehemiah, we know that has not happened yet. So if we're, going, if we're, if we're reading those in a, in a sense in which we take them literally, that, that God will do this one day among those ethnic people, then we know there are even foretastes of those promises that will be, I think, fulfilled more specifically in the millennial kingdom uh, in that thousand-year reign. So anyway, it's interesting because all of these things, when we deal with, with Jewish people and we're looking at their history, uh, this is all very pertinent to what's the discussions going on now and uh, wondering what God is doing with, with these people and seeing some of these things transpire, and I thought that was interesting. Now, if you look at Ezra chapter 2, we have this list of names. That's why when we see a list of names like this of the Jewish people uh, in Scripture, it is not just some arbitrary thing to pass over. It is something to recognize where God is actually showing us how He's fulfilling His promise to preserve these people. It's interesting, this isn't a nameless mass. He could have just said, you know, so many thousands of Jews returned at this time. One sentence, one verse could have covered everything in this. He doesn't do that. Look, I mean, He has all the different names broken down, uh, the different servants of the, uh, the temples, the, the Levites. Uh, he has it all break, uh, broken down here, the number of each one uh, all the way through the chapter. This isn't just a nameless mass of, of people here. This is really, I think, a way of which God is communicating something important 
about his fulfilling promises. Now, does anybody remember, did we look at Jeremiah 31 last time? Okay, we did look at that last time, that promise of his return, and how um, he says, it's in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So there is a, um, that's a continual promise of preservation to these people. We see that. And then um, the other promise of Jeremiah 33. Did we look at that? Anybody have that down? If not, we can just look at it. Jeremiah 33, 7 to 11. In verse 7, he says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah. And this is from Jeremiah, so we know that Jeremiah was that prophet that is not only prophesying about, he was in that unique time, so he's prophesying about the Babylonian invasion and the captivity, and then he's prophesying about it only being 70 years, and so he's in that intervening time, and so he's talking about this time when God's going to bring them back. Uh, In uh, Jeremiah 33, verse 7, I will restore the fortunes of Judah, and the fortunes of Israel will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast, that is, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant, without beast, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who uh, bring a thank offering in the house of the Lord, for I'll restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Now, if you look at chapter 3, it is interesting, just in connection to Jeremiah 33 there. Um, you look down at verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever, toward Israel and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid so there is this direct fulfillment of this okay there's a direct fulfillment of that he that's what Jeremiah said would happen so as they're doing this they should see that being fulfilled and yet look at verse 12 this is interesting but many of the priests and Levites And heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Um, I think even in pictures of Jeremiah 33, when it talks about God saying, I'm going to bring them back to the land, which he did, there's going to be an element of joy, which there was. But I think in those, there are um, 
uh, pictures and really prophecies of something far greater that's going to happen with those people in the future, okay? And so when you're reading those, it's always interesting to me as I read through the prophets and I, in my Bible reading, almost every day in my private time, I'm reading at least one chapter from the prophets. And there's so many of these types of paragraphs and verses that talk about what God's going to do among the Jewish people, uh, that it's interesting to think about when and how is that going to be fully fulfilled, okay? Now, I'll throw a little wrench in your spokes just for thoughts because uh, I didn't have a Red Bull today, but I did have a cup of coffee and a nap. So I'm thinking of these things, and there's a lot of things flowing through my head. But where this gets a little tricky is when we start dealing with the concept of the New Testament. Paul brings out that mystery where there is this union of Jew and Gentile in one new body, and that we can consider ourselves sons of Abraham by faith. And thinking about how that pertains to us then. You know, if you think about, let me, let me give you an illustration. Does this mean that when the millennial kingdom comes, or, and I'm a pre-millennial, so I believe in this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ and Jesus establishing His reign from Jerusalem over all the nations. And you have Jew and Gentile who are both in the body of Christ is there going to be a separation out of the Jewish people? Or are we, if Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are, that we are fellow heirs of the promises, how does that relate? There are people and um, uh, Christians who have viewed the, church, uh, the Scriptures historically this way. They would say that when you read those promises of restoring Israel to their land, um, that is a picture of what the church will be. In other words, it's not so much ethnic Israel, though God has promised to save some of those and bring them into the church, but it is um, of the, we're all going to experience that and, uh, because we're Gentiles and different things like this. So there's a lot of discussion about those things. What I always say is I say this. I think, it seems to me, that the way in which that can work out very neatly and nicely is in, in the millennial time when, yes, Jew and Gentile alike are in the body of Christ, and yet there are ethnic distinctions. I mean, we even see this in heaven that clearly every tribe, tongue, nationality are worshiping before the Lord. So I've always thought that what makes more sense than just a you know, almost a replacement of Israel completely as nothing, God's not doing anything more than that, is that what you have is uh, God will make a distinction in this time and that ethnic Jews that He's preserving and saving have a purpose of bringing Him glory in the, in the end and that uh, we'll do all that. But anyway, that's just food for thought and nothing to draw any, you know, I'm just throwing these things out to you because these are things that people wrestle through. So much so that it, when you get in chapter, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, right? And this is where largely God's dealing, or Paul's dealing with this issue of Jewish people. What, what's going to happen? And we're grafted into the vine and all these things. He says, at the end of that, the end of chapter 11, he says, 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Like, he, even Paul seems to have his mind blown by this time, and he's like, how the God is working all of this plan together and the mystery of the church and the ethnic Israel and all the, and it's like, wow, this is just really a lot. And he ends with just this great big worship of God. You've got it. You know, God's under, I've got as much as I can. I've delivered as much as I can to you, but God has, uh, is certainly beyond what we can do. But it's important to see that God is preserving these people and he has a plan in that for his own glory. And he's doing that even back in Ezra and uh, doing that. And then one more thing I was going to show you out of that second chapter is very important. In uh, chapter 2 is the fact that uh, we have in verse 2, uh, the first name that is mentioned is Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel, the reason this is interesting, because Zerubbabel was from the Davidic line, okay? Even in our sermon this morning in Romans, Romans chapter 1, what is so significant about being in the Davidic line? That's right, because the Messiah would be from the house of David, so very first thing in chapter 2, remember what our whole thing is, we're saying that when God's preserving these people and he's bringing them back to the land, it's that he has a plan to unite all things in him, the in him being Christ, the in him being Jesus, right? And so what we see is God makes sure he names, we have the Davidic line uh, being preserved among these people. And you will see that throughout scriptures. That's what first and second chronicles is all about it's the preservation of the davidic line so that god's promise would be fulfilled we're still looking for that messiah to come all the way now through zerubbabel and uh god has preserved this is why when you when you we if you celebrate christmas and we read about the the census that uh caesar wanted and everybody had to go to their own uh area to register and you have those from the lineage of David they're still being registered under their own uh, their own family tree so to speak so important because this is all about bringing in Jesus okay don't lose track of that in Ezra and Nehemiah this is all about preparing that land and those people to bring in the Messiah so that everything would be set up exactly as it needed to be set up so that when Jesus stepped on the scene, you would have Jerusalem, you would have a temple, you would have worship, you'd have priests, you'd have scribes, you'd have the recovery of the law, you'd have all those things that absolutely needed to be a part of Jesus' life that we see and read about in the Gospels, okay? All right. Now, a few things. Now, this is something different that I want to do, but we'll stay in Ezra here for a few minutes. Um, I just want to make sure I got those things out to you. Ezra is a time of reformation or renewal or revival. When you think of a revival, let me ask you this. You think of a revival. We, ever, we, know, we know what a revival is. What do you think of when you think of a revival? What's going on? Okay, just as I am. Yeah, because you're thinking of maybe a Billy Graham crusade or something or a tent revival that they'll maybe sing that as they'll call people to faith. 
Yeah. Good. Stirred is a good word because that's my first point actually in a minute. But so we're looking at stirring in people's hearts is what she said. I think there are certain elements that we see in a time like what we're going on here where we know God is working. You can see it in true revivals. You can see it in the Reformation period. If you, as you zoom out, maybe even when they were in it, they didn't even understand what was happening. But you look back on it 500 years later and you see these key ingredients that God is really doing a major work that's going to last. Okay? So, Aaron, you were going to say something. So there's a lamenting or mourning over sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me write some of these down because I'm going to show you where we find those because all those are true. So there's a stirring up in hearts. Uh, stirring up, we'll just put that, right? Stirring. And then there is repentance, right, Aaron? Is that what you were saying? There's repentance. And what was the other thing you said? Right, the Word of God becomes central. And then active service. Okay, good. That was one I didn't have, but that is, that's good to see, and we can see it easily in these um, things. So stirring up repentance, Word of God, active service. Worship, exactly. Good. You guys are way ahead of me. I don't even need to do the lesson. We can just pray and head out. There's worship. What is it? Oh, I thought somebody else had something too. Yeah. Okay, yes, the moving of the Holy Spirit, which actually I would put, yep, right there, the moving of the Holy Spirit right next to the stirring of hearts that we looked at, uh, you know, a few weeks ago in Ezra. Sandy? Yes, okay, and that could also be a stirring in the hearts. Okay, that's good though. An awakening out of complacency. And we'll actually see that happen a couple, you see that happen a couple times in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, okay so um, let's just go through some of these. And I, I'll, here's the order I have them in. The very first one, like when you want to identify if something is truly a revival, uh, what God is doing some work, um, you begin with this concept of God stirring up hearts, which is such a good word to use because it's exactly what um, we see in Ezra chapter 1, right? There was the stirring up of the spirit of Cyrus, right, in verse 1, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, I would not say that we would say that Cyrus was somehow stirred up to be a Christian or stirred up to be a follower of, of God in the truest sense, because remember, we already said that he was a, he was a polytheist, so to him, all gods were wonderful and he wanted them all on their side that was part of his political strategy as he's sending them back but God is clearly working here okay but then you had um verse five you had the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord so all we've got this stirring within the hearts of people to either do something or accomplish God's purpose or His will. You know, if you read through, you know, the life of Martin Luther as an example, 
It is so clear that God was bringing this man, he was working in his heart, bringing this man under a profound conviction of his own sinfulness and searching for answers. And then gave, and even before that with the uh, 95 Reese's uh, that uh, Mark brought to us last week, the 95 Reese's, uh, no, the 95 Theses, and um, the, this idea that he just saw what was happening in the, in the church with the issue of uh, in, uh, purchasing indulgence so you could buy people out of purgatory and all that. And as a pastor, which he was, and uh, it made him mad. He got angry about it. His heart stirred up, and that, this sparked the whole thing. So we see God working in hearts. Um, and sometimes this is in the area of unbelievers becoming believers, Right? You see that in a revival. You see people coming to true faith. Or God's work in their hearts. And sometimes, friends, it's just believers needing revitalization in their hearts. And somebody had said complacency earlier. And it's that idea of that happens to all of us. So, by the way, everything that we're looking at here is what we need constantly. And the... the uh, one of the mottos that came after the Reformation as it was looked back on probably about 100 years later was, uh, how do they say that? Semper Reformata, always reforming, always reforming. I always like that, not in the sense of the church as a whole, though that's true, but in the sense of individual Christians. I find that I'm constantly needing reformation and revitalization and reformation to being changing things because they're not working for me or all of the things we mentioned earlier of repentance of sin and reigniting of worship and different things. So this is something, this is very practical for us because this is what we need all the time in our lives. Uh, No one ever stays completely consistently at the peak of their zeal for God and His people and His Word and everything else. We all have struggles and we all uh, backslide and we all have times of that and we need this, right? So there's a working in God's heart or in people's hearts that clearly comes from God, you know? Okay, and then uh, secondly, there's the reestablishment of the worship. That's what I have for second. So reestablishment of worship or maybe a reform of worship that is needed. In Ezra now, in chapter 3, when you're dealing with these first three chapters, you're dealing with two, about two years of time, the first two years of time. And then there's going to be a halt after chapter 3 because of the opposition, and we'll look at that probably more next week. So there's that opposition, and a certain amount of years go by for that, and then God sends Haggai and Zechariah to say, get going again, to stir up their hearts again. But we're dealing about two years of time, and God, in His providence, through the writer of Ezra, has decided to record for us, chapter 3, two important and significant things that happened. The rebuilding of the altar, right? And the rebuilding of the temple. Both of these, the altar and the temple, are have to do with worship of God. So they are reestablishing the, the, what it is to be worshipers of God. And that begins, of course, with the altar. Why is it so important that the worship of God begins with the laying of the uh, re- rebuilding of the 
the altar in chapter 3 and the sacrifice of animals in, in sacrifice to God. Why was that so important to begin there when we talk about proper worship? Yes. Okay, because there's atonement for sin being made, right? The sacrifice for sin, which, of course, we understand in even a greater detail, uh, in greater detail because of Jesus, that there is no true worship of God apart with, from the sacrifice of Christ. So you have to have sacrifice in order to worship God. For us, it's very clear. It's not a sacrifice we re-offer. We don't have the mass every Sunday. We don't re-sacrifice Christ. It's a once-for-all sacrifice that Christ offered, but that is the way in which we approach God. There is no other way to approach God. There is no other way of proper worship. And interestingly, in the time of the Reformation, the worship of God had become so corrupted that there were many ways in which they had to uh, uh, reform worship itself and reestablish the nature of worship, and one of those was with what eventually came out of the Reformation is a rejection of mass, a rejection of the um, body and blood officially becoming Jesus' body and blood, um, and a rejection of this idea that we need to re-sacrifice Christ over and over again, and eventually even a, a rejection of things like purgatory uh, that would actually diminish the work of Christ. So there became this, throughout the Reformation period, some things we appreciate now just as, duh, you know, uh, but they didn't, un- they, they're coming out of a system of belief that taught wrongly about the finished work of Christ. And so we know that now. But true revivals and true Reformation times, and when God's really working, there is going to be a refocus, I think, on the gospel, on the good news of Jesus Christ and specifically the cross of Christ. That's going to be a part of it. Yeah, right. Good. Yep. Yep. So, um, sacrifice being central, that's what they begin to do, and then goes on to the beginning of, they, they, they'll lay the foundation of the temple there um, and, and reestablish uh, worship of God. In chapter 6 of Ezra, when they are, they dedicate the temple, they get it finished after a period of uh, prolonged stopping, and then init- uh, right in verse 19, as you can see, if you just look at the heading, they establish the Passover uh, as this remembrance. Remember what the Passover was for the people of God, the remembrance of His deliverance for them out of Egypt and all that they had to go through. And then interestingly enough, Christ would be sacrificed during Passover uh, when He was here. And so there's this reestablishment of worship And then somebody else had said, the Word of God. Uh, When you have true revival, true reformation, you have a refocusing on God's Word. And this is important because, to understand, if you look at Ezra chapter 7, when you think about Ezra, now remember, he doesn't show up till everything's been going on for uh, quite a few years. Ezra shows up, chapter 
uh, 7. And Ezra is, well, just look at the verse here. His whole purpose, uh, we'll see in verse 10, his whole purpose in returning is to teach the Bible, to bring a refocus on the written Word of God. And by the way, at this time period, this is, this is really interesting and important. In Israel's history, this will become a time period when there will be a shift from a focusing on the spoken word through prophets in the sense of verbal speaking to a focus on written word. In Ezra and those who followed in the scribal order after him that many believe he kind of established in Israel when he got back. Remember, scribes were the ones that would meticulously care for the written Word of God, and they would copy down the written Word of God and make sure it's being passed on, that there was a focus in Israel rechanging from uh, the hearing new and direct revelation from God and prophecies to the written Word of God. And um, as, uh, as a matter of fact, after Malachi, there were no prophets in Israel. And um, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian who was uh, writing for the Roman Empire, and this is after Christ, said, he makes that comment that the Jews accepted the Old Testament that we have now, that we would name all the way through Malachi, but then after that there were no more prophets for about 400 years, and then they perceived John the Baptist to be a prophet. This is what was so significant about John the Baptist, by the way, is all of a sudden a new prophet's in town. And so they're all going out to him. But at any rate, it's a refocusing on the written word of God. This would become, in the church age, of course, what we have. What do we have as the word of God? What do we focus on? The written word of God. Okay? And so there's this new focus. But you're going to see that in true revival. A true revival is not just people who sing and have good feelings when they sing. There's nothing wrong with singing and having good feelings. I love singing and having good feelings. Don't hear me wrong. But in, cord- in connection to that, there's going to be a renewed interest in God's Word. There's going to be a renewed interest in what God says in, in the Bible. Okay? Jim. Right. Good. Yes, which I will put under this one right here. So the, the change of behavior, repentance. We'll get to that, change of behavior. And that's going to come along here even in Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's, let's keep going through that. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 8, um, where Ezra reads the law to the people, um, All the people as one man gathered as one man. This is Nehemiah, by the way, next book, Nehemiah chapter 8. They all gathered together there, uh, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the law, uh, the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Uh, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it. You go on to read, we won't... uh, take all the time to do it, but the people were listening to him. And then they were, uh, down in verse 8, they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood his reading. 
here you have um, really the foundation of Christian preaching is right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is the foundation for preaching. They built him a platform. They told him to bring the Bible. They got up and read the Bible to the people, and then they explained it verse by verse. That's, really, that's literally what it says they did. They gave the sense as they walked through each passage of it so that the people could understand God's Word. This is the foundation of what we will see later on as Christian preaching. And in revival and in Reformation, that's what you're going to see. You're going to have along, accompanied with all of the other elements, you're going to have the Word preached. You're going to have the Word taught. And this is what we read this this morning, right? In 2 Timothy 4, preach the Word in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Where does that come from? We don't just pull that out of the air. This comes from God's Word. This is what He's designed for His people. So you're not having true, you're not, you're not having true revival, true reformation apart from God's Word and apart from these elements. This is all part and parcel of what, um, what goes hand in hand with it. By the way, I forgot to read Ezra 7.10. And Ezra's whole purpose of coming back. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This was his intention in going back. And he was, uh, he was skilled in doing this. So we have the Word of God. And then, um, and then that is where what Jim just said, uh, we have then... Uh, True repentance that leads to change. True repentance that leads to change, which is what true repentance is. If there is no change, ultimately, there's not really repentance because a repentance, the word repentance simply means a turning. Uh, and you're, you're going to change now. And you see this in chapters 9 and 10. Now look at the heading over chapter 9. The people of Israel confess their sin. The Word of God's being read, the Word of God's preaching, and the very next thing you have in Ezra... Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. That's Nehemiah 9. But there is an... Hold on one second. Yeah, maybe we're still in Ezra here. Yeah, we can do that here. It doesn't matter because there, there's repentance going on in Ezra as well. But in, both in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have this idea of na- like really national repentance. Remember they had married pagan wives? And Nehemiah got all mad, so mad, he beat people up over it, and he was pulling out their hair, and he's smacking them around. Like <laughs> It's not recommended. They don't teach that in seminary anymore. They say, please don't do that to your people. But, uh, but, there's this, but what does that show? This zealousness for, you know, what have we done? And you see this both in Ezra, and you'll see it again in Nehemiah. There is this repentance, and then that leads to true change and that's really what you see in revival when God's working in somebody's heart you see all of these elements even at a microcosm level and the person then begins living differently it's a natural outflow of what God is doing uh, in their lives and so I'll close us here with 2nd Corinthians if you want to look at 2nd Corinthians chapter 7 you know Paul wrote at least three letters to these people. We have the first and I think the last. Um, 
but he's referring to the times he's written to them and probably in, in what we have as 1 Corinthians, but and he, they got his letter and he had given them a, a, a verbal chastisement perhaps for this man that they were allowing to be in the assembly, though he was um, immoral, sexually immoral, and that's where he says you need to put him out of the body and such. But anyway, listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, he said, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a certain kind of grief, right? You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So when God is working, you see this in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when God is working and His Word is being preached and worship is being restored and He's stirring up hearts, you're going to see repentance, confession, and change. And this should be going on with us all the time. These same elements, again, this is why our worship service contains all of these elements. And um, it includes a time each week when we can be uh, introspective to a degree to where we say, I've sinned in word, thought, or deed. Forgive me, God. Thank you for the forgiveness you give me. And then there's that commitment that should accompany a commitment to change. So, I thought this was interesting uh, for me to, to analyze this in light of Reformation and, and uh, revival and revitalization and something that we always need. And so, um, anyway, any thoughts or questions? Yeah, Betty. Yeah, well, that is a question, but we would believe <coughs> that most of what we have contained in the Old Testament minus Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles probably to a degree, if that was written by Ezra, um, would be, and, and Malachi, anything that was written after him or during his time would be in their word. But I think when they were saying, okay, he read the law, and I was just reading about this the other day, and there's some speculation about this, but mainly probably reading from Deuteronomy was a key book. Um, it's probably the key book that was even restored under Josiah's time and different things. But anyway, that's just all interesting. So basically, we can assume most of what we knew, what we know was the Old Testament leading up to their time period is what we could say. We can't say for certain everything that they had record of, but we know by the time of Christ what they, all, what they had compiled because we know what the Scriptures were to them at that time. So they were out there, but what particularly he had at that time um, it could be up to speculation. Yeah, Aaron. So much of what you talked about makes me kind of smile and reflect on Christ in the temple. Yeah. When he fashioned the world. And he drove them out because you talked about, you know, the Gentiles. And, you know, that was part of that area. Yeah. Oh, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yep.
Yeah, it is interesting because if you think about in the 400 years that transpired, the true Reformation and revival had died off. The outward form of what was established there, like the temple, the worship, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the law, all those things, that was there. But we clearly can see that there was a real problem still among true worship of, of God's people and such in that time. So that was one of the other points. Like these things always have their way of, you know, even if you think about the Reformation period of, of the 16th century in Europe, and now look at Europe. You see what I mean? As, there, as, a, as it relates to their Christianity. <clears throat> And now, just frankly, lack thereof, or, or very little that is there that is true. So it's interesting. All right, good. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for your, uh, this time. Thank you for your word. I pray now that you, God, would dismiss us in your blessings and that we would have a good and godly week as we seek to live for you. And Lord, if there's anyone in here, who needs their heart revitalized. We pray that you do it because it's always such a joy when you work in us in these powerful ways. It, it, uh, we, we feel closer to you. Uh, we have more love for you, your people, your truth. And so we pray that you would continually be doing in this in us. And we confess we are a people who are in daily need of your grace um, for all of these things. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.